Listeners, welcome to The Learning Curve. This is Kara Kandel reunited with my good friend, Gerard Robinson. Gerard, you had to be away last week. We had our friend Darrell Bradford pinch hitting for you. It was, as I'm sure you heard, a rather heavy conversation for the heavy times. Looking forward to getting back together with you this week. We've got some great guests coming up today, some local guys here talking about a new book from Pioneer Institute. So on the whole, things are looking good. How are you doing, Mr. Robinson? I'm doing well. I'm always glad to be with you again and glad that we can cover some ground. And you're right, it was a heavy week last week. And my condolences to family, friends, and others who were impacted by what took place in Texas. And uh, we will see what people in state capitals and federal government will do. And in the interim, we will continue to plug along to help people with the learning curve. Absolutely. And it it remains heavy. I mean, to be clear, like this is not even the case of Uvalde and so many, so many, so many other tragedies that this country has suffered in recent decades and weeks. And it was not a good weekend for folks in places like Tennessee and Chicago and in fact, across Mm -hmm. the country continue to happen. And I was, no, no, George, you know, I was thinking as we were thinking about what stories we want to talk about this week. One of the reasons I picked mine is because I think it illustrates the slow, sometimes seemingly like just dinosaur-like, I mean, I don't know how fast dinosaurs were, I guess you forgot to Jurassic Park, some were quite fast, but I don't know what the word is I'm looking here, but just like turtle-like, I suppose, pace of policy change from time to time. And I think that there's good in that and there's bad in that, but I know a lot of people in this country are feeling like, wow, why is it taking so long to affect even the smallest of changes? And different people follow, have different opinions about what those changes should be. We should certainly acknowledge. But we feel that same frustration quite often when it comes to thinking about the slow pace of policy change. I like to think about it as like, I always think of policymaking, Gerard, as one of those switchback trains. I don't know if you've ever ridden a switchback train up a mountain and it it goes up a yep. little bit and then it has to like switch back to get momentum to keep going up. And I, I think of policy making like that because sometimes we're in the business, you know, of thinking like we have a big vision, but to get people on board and aligned with that big vision, sometimes you have to push for the small tweaks in order okay. to get to the big vision. And I think that that can be really frustrating no matter what kind of policy you're trying to make. Certainly when it comes to education, one of the things that I personally find frustrating is that often it takes generations. Often we fail generations of children before we're able to make policy changes in places that we that we can feel pretty confident are based in sound data and evidence and, and are going to work. And today I'm thinking about the case of New Mexico. And here I've got an article out of New Mexico. It's entitled New Mexico's Education Reform Plan Presented to Tribal Leaders. This is by Sean Griswold. And this is about Gerard. Now, some listeners should correct me if I pronounce the name of this case, but it's about the Yassi Martinez case, which was an adequacy lawsuit in New Mexico. I believe in 2018, we learned the outcome. And in that, as in many adequacy cases in the past couple of decades, a judge ruled that New Mexico students who have a right to be college and career ready 
they ruled that the state was, in fact, failing to meet that obligation. We've seen adequacy lawsuits in your home state, in my home state, in many places across this country. Often it has to do with school funding. Often it has to do with instituting new standards that kids are going to meet. But what that means is that the state has to take action, right? The onus is on the state because most of the time states have constitutional, I think all states now have a clause in their constitution giving them authority for education. And many states define what it means to have a right to an education in their state constitution. So under this case from 2018, it became clear that action needed to be taken. And the judge in the case called out several areas, this is reminding me as I keep talking about of Boston Public Schools, several several areas in which the state was really failing students. Those areas where they were failing students of color to help them achieve at the levels that they needed to, failing to help ELL students, and that includes Native American students, of which there are many in New Mexico, and Hispanic students. And the judge said that, you know, this was all in violation of the state's constitution, called for high-quality pre-K, called for culturally, linguistically relevant education, smaller class sizes, all of the things that we can think about smaller class sizes. I don't know the data on that don't necessarily bear out. But you can see that there's this charge to make reform. And now, as New Mexico lurches, it sounds like is the best word towards reform, you know, local stakeholders are expressing some concerns. And what this article really points out is that New Mexico's tribal leaders are really expressing concerns about the extent to which the state is meeting its obligation to serve Native American students and to consult with the community about what the community's needs are. So Native American leaders in that state are saying that the state, while it's looking at this, quote, overhaul after decades of neglect and underfunding that affected people with disabilities, those learning English, Native Americans. We can talk about underfunding. I think you and I are often in the camp of like, it's not all about the money people. But when it comes to Native American education, and honestly, when it comes to the history of what this country has done to Native Americans in tribal schools and other places, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that sometimes funding does make a very important difference. But tribal leaders are concerned, concerned, I'll say, that the State Department of Education is not taking its recommendations and even pieces of legislation that have been passed in recent years seriously enough. What they're pointing to is the quote-unquote piecemeal inclusion of what several different Native American tribes got together and offered what they're calling a tribal remedy framework. And some of those, some pieces of that framework were passed as part of a legislative package, but the state, according to these leaders, is taking a really long time getting those things rolling and getting them in motion. And the tribes are also calling for more local control. Local control, they say, where we are, quote, the creators, the authors, the founders of the education that's going to help improve our students' outcome. One thing that they're calling for in terms of local action and local authority is they want the ability to leverage teacher training colleges and tribal colleges to create teacher pipelines that put more Native American teachers into classrooms, especially in Native American areas and serving Native American students. So anyway, George, I found this to be a really interesting article because, again, it demonstrates sort of that lurch back and forward that is policy making and that even when, you know, a court can say something, we know this from Brown v. Board. I mean, it took two decisions to get states to take action, right? 
a court can say something that doesn't mean that the action is going to be taken and that doesn't mean that the actions are going to be implemented. This article also made me think a lot about this concept of local control. Sometimes I think we use local control as a catch-all term and that the stakeholders that people think of, like parents and on-the-ground leaders, in this case tribal leaders, aren't necessarily represented even when decisions are made locally. Sometimes other local stakeholders, the loudest voices in the room that really represent larger interests but frame themselves as local, are really in the driver's seat. But I think that this is a case to watch. And certainly there's a lot of change needed in New Mexico. We've seen several promising programs like a universal ESA halted there in recent years. But I'm going to keep my eye on the state of New Mexico, and I'm going to keep fingers crossed that the pace of policy change, even as key personnel in that state's Department of Education are dismissed or turn over, that the pace of policy change can not only ramp up, but can ramp up in a way that is going to be good for kids. So as a former state chief, Gerard, I know that you at times must have been incredibly frustrated with the pace of policy change and implementation. So I'd really love your take. I was an advocate for many years before the state level work and I was frustrated with the level of change then. And then once inside being a part of uh, the sausage making, there were challenges. We know that a lot that we wanna see in schools that we want to see take place, a lot of that's really driven by political will and at times outside influences. So think about the pace of school choice reform over the last 24 months. It's not as if we didn't have school choice legislation, model legislation. It's not as if we didn't have that. It was COVID and the response of families and a very interesting coalition of interests that came together that just moved that forward. You mentioned Brown v. Board of Education. Families have been pushing, for example, in your state of Massachusetts, going back to the 1700s, moving forward to the 1800s, pushing for better schools. And yet you don't really see those kind of changes until the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Boston, a lot of that with political will. You're also right about progress. I mean, President Obama said that progress isn't always a straight line or a smooth path. So Yeah, so personally, I've seen it in two different worlds. One thing that will be interesting to see is what local control looks like in New Mexico. In Virginia, where I live, local control is real. And we know that there's also something called uh, Dillon's Rule, which said that localities are really creatures of the state. And that may be true, but you have states that have strong local control. And so I don't know a lot about New Mexico's law, but it would be interesting to see. I'm a fan of getting more Native Americans or the terms they use to call themselves locally in New Mexico. I'd love to see more of a pipeline. We know that having African-American students have African-American teachers has got a positive impact. I won't assume that there's no difference with the students, Native American students as well. So I will follow this. The fact that it's in the courts is a good thing. It'll put some pressure on the legislature, but that's going to be one to watch because we have, when we talk about students of color, we often overlook Native Americans. It's often Black and Hispanic at times when politically necessary. We say Asian students, and even then we uh, disaggregate sometimes Chinese and Japanese and Indian students away from Hmong and others. So we will see how this plays out. It's a great story.
My story isn't from any state. It actually is about all states. And it's an article written by Jay Matthews, who's been a guest of ours here on The Learning Curve, and it's for The Washington Post. And the title is, What Happened to Physical Education? It's Losing Ground in Our Push for Academic Improvement. And so Jay starts off by saying he was a poor athlete, and he really didn't prefer having anything to do with PE classes. And when many of his classmates had, you know, shared the same view, well, given his decades of research and writing on education, he's reached a point where he says, well, I think we've got to a point where our anti-PE bias has come to rule our education system. And so he bases that not only on his research, but he's talking about a new book by Claire Nader, and it's called You Are Your Own Best Teacher, Sparking the Curiosity, Imagination, and Intellect of Tweens. And she's a social scientist, and she took a look at where are we as a nation with PE? And so she said, you know, these days, only 4% of elementary schools, 7% of middle schools, and 2% of high schools have daily PE the entire school year. 22% of schools have no PE at all. And so she went into looking at what happened. He did the same. And they identified that basically our push for achievement and testing began to push out the need for PE as we push for more reading, more mathematics, science, and other subjects. But there's also a money dynamic. So you have Terry Drain, who is the president of Shape America. She says when money gets tight, PE is one of the first things to go. I've seen that both as an advocate and as a professional in education, even at the local level when I work for D.C. public schools. And so others are saying the same thing. I mean, it's not new. So by 2007, the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation report identified only 36% of students were doing the recommended one-hour physical activity a day, and 30% participated in a sport on a regular basis. And so the article goes on to say, listen, if you want to do something, let's make good use of what we have for resources. And then you have Ken Reed, policy director of the Sports Reform Project League of Fans, And Ken noted that type 2 diabetes was once considered an adult disease. However, you now have young people who have type 2 diabetes. And so people are coming to the case. And we even went a step further and said a 20-minute jog around a school building would do more to improve test scores than 20 extra minutes of cramming for the tests. And so there's some really good information uh, to take a look at here. And so what I want to do for our listeners is to put this 2022 conversation in historical context through the lens of policy, because physical education, many of us may not know, is one of the few bipartisan issues going back to the 1950s where people came together in Washington, D.C. to try to do something. And so I want to give you just a few examples. And so you go back to the Dwight D. Eisenhower administration. And there was a report published in 1953 in the Journal of the American Association for Health and Physical Education and Recreation. And the title of the article is Muscular Fitness and Health. And it was co-authored by Dr. Hans Krauss and Bonnie Pruden. And it sounded an alarm for the nation because they identified the poorest state of health of the youth in the United States. Well, two years later, another report was published in the New York State Journal of Medicine, and it based its conclusion on a test that was given to approximately 4,400 students between the ages of 6 and 16 in public schools across the United States, 
and to approximately 3,000 European students in the same age range in Switzerland, Italy, and Austria. And what they found out is, guess what? American children compared to their European counterparts were not doing well. And so we often find that when it's time to compare ourselves to others or being challenged by others, we decide to take a national stand. So June 1956, President Eisenhower creates the President's Council on Youth Fitness, setting in place what future presidents from him all the way up to Biden would use to support physical education. When John F. Kennedy moved in, he supported it, but he made one additional change by making sure in his executive order that it wasn't just focused on children between ages 5 to 12, but he wanted to expand it to all children. But he also listed as one of the objectives in the executive order, enlisting the aid of citizens and civic groups and others to be involved so that all the owners would not be placed on schools. When Johnson was president, he did the same thing. He kept everything in place. Plus, as a good Texan in a big sports state, he added sports to the title. Well, you fast forward through a number of presidents who supported the program, and you get to Barack Obama. He supported what previous presidents had done, but he did something different. In his executive order, he changed the name slightly, and it became the President's Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. The first one to add in nutrition piece, in part driven by First Lady Michelle Obama, who believed that health and nutrition had to be a part of the conversation. Once President Trump was in office, he continued with the momentum, but also made a push to create a strategy. Currently, President Biden, in his executive order, that is going to be in place from until September 30th, 2023, continues to move forward with that. So when we talk about PE and we talk about states, we have to know that, again, this debate is pretty old. I'm looking at a 1993 article in Education Week where in 1987, there were at least 42 states that had some physical education instruction. By the time the article was reported or published in 1993, there were at least 46 states. But there were challenges then. And an organization that we talked about earlier, SHAPE, produced a survey of physical education requirements in 50 states. And they identified that 25 states require one-year physical education, and it moves forward. Well, that was 1993. I'm looking at the Shape of America executive summary from 2016, and nearly all 50 states have met, have set standards for physical education, but still there are some discrepancies. Many states require physical education teachers to meet professional standards requirements. Others do not. Some states, for example, 31 allow activities as substitutes for physical education credit. That is rubbing some advocates for PE the wrong way because they're saying you need PE for physical education, they may have nothing to do with academic achievement. It may have nothing to do with sports. Not all children are going to play sports, but they need PE for their physical well-being. So I am with Jay that we need to pay attention to physical education. I differ that I don't believe that it was solely panned for the sake of student achievement. Right. Student achievement and Physical education can go hand in hand, but it is something we need to pay attention to because I saw firsthand at the state level what obesity was doing to young people and the health care costs it will have on local communities once those young people turn 21 and, and many times become dependent upon the state for health care mm -hmm. and things from there. What are your thoughts? I 
I think of it as the brain body behavior connection, Gerard, because in my house, my children know that if mommy doesn't get her one hour of exercise in the morning, like, don't cross me. (laughs) (laughs) And and here's the, here's the other thing I will say. We also need to think about one of the things I've learned from my kids school. Thank you very much. Is that you can integrate physical activity and movement throughout the day. The dedicated hour is fantastic and important as is recess. But for example, when <clears throat> I have an eight-year-old boy, when he gets a little out of hand, my school has a curriculum that they call lift heavy things. And they find that if they give the kid a task like, hey, walk this ream of paper down to the office, nothing that's going to hurt themselves, right? And get the wiggles out a little bit, that they're up and down stairs, they're doing this stuff, they come back, they're calmer, they're engaged. So I love that article, Gerard. And boy, oh boy, do I love physical education. I used to love that Presidential Physical Fitness Award. Yep. Anywho, that was President Reagan. So Gerard, we've got to bring in our fabulous guests. We are going to be speaking with Chris Sinicola and David Ferrara, they are co-editors of Pioneer's new book, Hands-On Achievement, Massachusetts National Model Vocational Technical Schools. We're going to bring them in right after this. Learning Curve listeners, so pleased to have with us today, David Ferrara and Chris Sinicola. They are co-editors of Pioneer Institute's new book, Hands-On Achievement, Massachusetts's National Model Vocational Technical Schools. David Ferrer spent his professional career as a VocTech teacher, coordinator, and principal in 16 years as superintendent of a regional school district. He was inducted into the Demon Regional VocTech Hall of Fame. And Chris Sinicola, also, I would have to say, editor of one of my books, has more than 35 years of experience in journalism, marketing, healthcare, and freelance writing. He was a reporter and editor at the Worcester, yes, if you're from Massachusetts, you know how to say that, it is not Worcester, Worcester, Telegram and Gazette from 1987 until 2015. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. All right. Well, we're happy to have you. So I'm going to throw the first question out and we'll see who answers. But Here we go. So as both of you know, well, under the 1993 Massachusetts Education Reform Act, the state has experienced historic gains on NAEP reading and math while remaining the only state that's internationally competitive in math and science. The naysayer in me has to remind folks that we are backsliding. So let's not pat ourselves on the back too much. But can you all talk about how your new book, tells the story of the Bay State's nation-leading Vogue Tech schools, and specifically how it relates to the accountability tools that we were given under the Massachusetts Education Reform Act. Sure, I'll give that one a shot, Kara. First of all, thanks very much for having us. This is a great opportunity, and we're really glad to share what we can with the audience. The Massachusetts Education Reform Act was, of course, a watershed in state history. And I think a couple of surprises emerged. One was that initially the vocational technical community was actually rather, not hostile exactly, but they gave it a mixed reception. There was a lot of opposition. And as we write in the concluding chapter to the book, few doubted the abilities of Voctech students. Rather, they objected to what was widely seen at the time as a mismatch between testing and curriculum. So there was that concern that we're not set up to do this kind of high stakes testing. So why should we be subject to it? But what happened, and that was the first surprise, is that the Voctech community responded really, really well. They realized that there's no way we're going to get out of this. We have to face it. They did. 
And the strength of their model, that 50% of time in shop and 50% of time in academic classes, really came out um, and showed its value because they've achieved remarkable results. They not only met the challenge, they've continued to meet the challenge. They've um, built and sustained strong partnerships with business communities throughout the state. And the real key to this, I think, is the mentorship aspect, that mentality that has shop teachers working with the same group of kids, the same 10 to 15 young people, every other week for hours at a time. And that really makes a difference in their lives. And I think the other surprise that came out of Mira is that everyone expected, and I think the intent, was that the district public schools and the charter schools would learn from one another. But the dark horse here has been the Vogue Tech community, which has soared ahead, even while the other schools have made significant gains, but remain in an uneasy relationship, whereas Vogue Tech has kind of taken the lead. So it's been great to see. So, David, let me go to you and stick on the same subject of the 1993 law. So I'm a California guy and had a chance to watch some of this from afar. But your state was very strong on occupational education, at the same time early on struggling with academics. You graduated proficient industry credential plumbers and carpenters, electricians, uh, auto repair persons, and medical technicians. And it was required that the students also have a solid grounding in reading and math. Talk to us about what your state did in moving Voltec schools to not only keep the strong Voltec side, but also making sure that academic subjects and career and education were wedded in a way that made a lot of sense. Well, thank you for the opportunity as well. I would say one of the big reasons is we did not lose focus on our mission. And our mission is to prepare students with occupational skills for employment. And at the same time, the ability academically and socially to have a successful life in whatever career path they choose. But occupational education in Massachusetts actually started more than a century ago with industrial schools or occupational schools, particularly in the large urban areas. And back 100 years ago, the scheduling of time was much different. We would provide students with one-third hands-on instruction in their vocational area, one-third of their time learning the related theory to that trade, the related mathematics needed to succeed, and lastly, the ability to read blueprints. And it was specific to those particular occupations. But then, with the ed reform, as Chris had mentioned, we now have to spend about half of our time in the vocational setting, including the related theory, math, et cetera, and the other half of our time in academic instruction. So we developed competencies, academic competencies, that were included in the state frameworks for vocational programs, and there are 45 different ones across the state. And these academic competencies paralleled exactly the requirements for competency determination from MCAS. So we were teaching our theory, but emphasizing those components that would still provide the occupational experience and the technical skills that needed to be employed down the road. So we were trying to do two things at one time. We were teaching, in theory, academic concepts in an applied setting, 
and we would teach things like the Pythagorean theorem and carpentry, but in a way of trying to relate it to the building of rafters and the angles of those rafters in that particular post and beam construction. So it was a practical way of using the academic standards, but applying them to each individual vocational technical program. I have a question for Chris, actually. And Chris, you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about schools of choice together. And of course, here in the Bay State, Oak Tech schools are schools of choice. And many times they are the most competitive schools in a community, meaning they have very long wait lists. In, in some communities, it's charter schools, and Vogtech schools are the ones that families really are clamoring to get into. So can you talk about, I've got two questions here. Talk about the choice autonomy aspect and how that's led to these great results. But also I'm really curious to know about the kinds of programs that students are clamoring to get into and the extent to which they correlate, for example, to high demand, high wage jobs. So like what are kids going on to do? Well, the first question uh, you have there is, the key word is really choice, because the Mass Education Reform Act did create charter schools. And just as with charter schools, uh, students who go into vocational technical education are making a conscious choice. They are not going to the default school in their community. They're saying, I want something that's going to engage my mind and my hands and my brain in, in every way. So we've seen the exact same phenomenon unfold at charter schools, really, in a way, as we've seen unfold at Voc Tech schools, where students who choose a particular kind of education are invested in ways that they simply aren't or might not be if they go to their local public school. While the Massachusetts model of Voctech education, that 50% of your time in shop, 50% of your time in academic class, is not widely shared around the country, the charter model is far more familiar to many states. So it's hardly surprising that we've seen the benefits that follow from that. I mean, a student who gets up each day and is excited at the prospect of going to school, essentially to what they see as a job in many cases, and, and often is a job when they get their co-op experience, that student is going to be more motivated. There's every incentive for them to show up and far less reason, if any reason at all, for them to stay home or take a day off, much less drop out. And we've seen that borne out in the statistics. For example, Worcester Technical High School had a dropout rate of 4.7% in 2003-2004 school year. That was just two years prior to the opening of the new school near Greenhill Park, where the business community heavily invested and supported that institution. 10 years later, their dropout rate was 0.5%. It's an extraordinary record. And even though all dropout rates across Massachusetts have declined in all schools, Voctech still remains ahead of the comprehensive high schools. And we see Another natural byproduct of that, which is high graduation rates. We have schools we spoke with who reported zero dropouts and 100% graduation rates. It's an amazing achievement for any school and really not surprising when you consider the history of it. Um, the other question you have, what fields are they going into? The schools in Massachusetts, and I think David can speak to this a little bit more than I can, have the autonomy and flexibility to change their programs. There's something like 45 different programs. And if something like uh, home economics or homemaking is no longer in vogue or necessary or in demand, they will drop that program over the years and they'll add things like audiovisual, radio and TV production, computer-aided design, and so forth. 
So because they have these advisory committees at each school, and they are really, really plugged into the business community, they have their finger on the pulse of that community. They know exactly what the job needs are and how to meet them. And they're doing a fantastic job doing it. David, Chris said something really interesting about dropout rates, and I've got a particular interest in working to support students with special needs. And at the national level, students with special needs, the enrollment rate is 12%. In your state, it's 17%. While within Massachusetts, folk tech schools alone, the average is nearly 30%. I mean, that's just incredible. Could you talk about how folk tech schools have effectively served students with special needs while also maintaining a very small dropout rate for the population? Certainly. Uh, I think that that percentage is sometimes deceiving, too, because when we talk about dropout rates and the low 0.6% overall for the regional Boat Tech schools, for example, that includes that 30% in some cases that are special needs population. So it makes those much lower overall dropout rates even more significant. And I think a lot of it comes into the concept of a small learning community. We have students in vocational technical programs that are with three teachers for their entire four years. They don't have different teachers every year. They have the same teachers every year who teach their specific part of the trade, but they're all in one family. And we have a strong sentiment that that is really a powerful tool. It's powerful because they get to know the student well beyond their physical or academic ability. They get to know the student as a person and they become a family. The entire group becomes a family and there's a lot of care and concern within each student from student to student, and certainly from instructor to student. And I think that's one of the big keys, these small learning environments. And that if you think about it, 50% of the time is in a vocational program. Out of their four years in high school, they're with three teachers or four teachers, depending on the number of students in the program, for half of their high school education. You don't get that kind of understanding between student and teacher, concern about student and teacher, and the family implications that come along with it, unless you've got this very, very tight arrangement. And we're teaching in a hands-on experiential pedagogy, where we're relating everything we teach to an occupational career path. And I think that's very helpful to many of the special needs students because they can understand where this is going to take them. Chris kind of alluded to that, that they have a goal in mind. They have a job coming in mind. And many of them go out into cooperative education where they spend all of their senior year shop time out in the field working for money with a real employer who's overseeing their work ethic and their work style. So. I think those are the two things. We're developing these competencies, but we're developing them for special needs students, especially in a very small learning environment. 
Wow. So, Chris, I want to kick it back to you for a minute because I know you as a history guy in many ways. So the book includes an introduction by Dr. Jackie Moore on the historic early 20th century debate between Booker T. Washington, who favored Voctech schools, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who advocated for the liberal arts, both of which it seems are pretty good and could coexist. But can you talk about the lessons from that debate? And I'd also love if you could give us a few more examples from places like Worcester, where President Obama and Colin Powell both spoke, and even in a place like Springfield, Mass., which has long had issues with schools, but its vote checks have flourished. Well, both Worcester and Springfield have done extraordinary work. And in fact, one of the chapters is devoted to explaining how both of those communities took what were aging, in some ways fading and struggling vocational schools and remade them both physically and also revolutionized the way instruction was done and how they thought about it. And both have been extraordinary success stories and are now in high demand. That makes a great chapter in and of itself. And as for Dr. Moore's introduction, one of the real pleasures of working on this book was doing some of the research and background learning. I was familiar with Du Bois's book, The Souls of Black Folk. I had not read uh, Booker T. Washington's uh, Up From Slavery, his best known work. But I had the chance to, to read both in working on this. And both of these men are absolutely pivotal and inspirational figures in American history and in the history of education. I recommend them highly to everyone. In 1895, Washington gave an address in Atlanta, and he declared, and I quote, no race can prosper until it learns that there is as much dignity in killing a field as in writing a poem. It is at the bottom of life we must begin and not at the top, nor should we permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities. And that was kind of responded to by Du Bois in his 1903 essay, The Talented Tenth. And he wrote, I would not deny or seem to depreciate in the slightest degree the important part industrial schools must play in the accomplishment of these ends. But I do say and insist upon it that it is industrialism drunk with its vision of success to imagine that its own work can be accomplished without providing for the training of broadly cultured men and women to teach its own teachers and to the teachers of the public schools. So they had this debate. It went on throughout their lives. And I hope that I don't think it divided them so much. And I think that sometimes the public got the wrong impression that they were mutually exclusive goals. And they certainly weren't. They were coming at the same problem from different angles. And there was probably a lot more agreement than disagreement in their positions. And that serves really as a model for what vocational education can and should be and what Massachusetts has made of it, taking that practical sense and adding to it some real rigorous academic achievement. And the results are marvelous and they're, they're getting better. David, can you provide us one example where you've seen a good partnership between a Voctech school, a business or a union to ensure that graduates succeed in school as well as in the workforce? I think we certainly can do that. And there are many examples of that. But I would like to say first is that this is a natural match. If you go all the way back to 100 years ago, industrial schools or occupational schools were for the purpose of building industry and training employees. And that's one mission that still exists today. And actually, statutorily, we are required to have advisory boards for each of our vocational technical programs that have to meet in public two times per year 
and the composition of that committee would include people from business and industry, union representation, post-secondary education, a student, a parent, and mass hire representation. So we have all of the angles meeting twice a year, and they're looking at curriculum. They're looking at the equipment. And equally important, they're advising our teachers what is changing down the road. How is the field or what are the competencies that kids use? And also these advisory programs are regional. So we're not looking, for example, uh, down on the south coast of Massachusetts, the type of welding that takes place. It's far different than other parts of the Commonwealth. And welding is a big industry down here, but in a different way because of the marine and fishing industry that we have down in the, the greater New Bedford area. So it's this kind of thing. We provide them employees. We provide them students that they can bring on for paid employment during the senior year in cooperative education, and they get a chance to evaluate how successful they feel their students are going to be. We have companies that have been donating as a result of their affiliation supplies and equipment to the Votech school. And I'm talking $70,000 worth of equipment that the electrical program at Old Colony Vocational received from a company that's not in the South Coast. In Greater New Bedford Voc, another South Coast vocational technical school who's involved with Griffin Electric. And Griffin Electric has provided thousands of dollars in equipment and hired hundreds of employees from that school. So it's a win-win situation for both sides. But what makes Massachusetts unique, I think, is that's a statutory requirement. Thank you. Well, Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you to close us out with a passage of your choice from your new book. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, David made a good point, and it's, there's a lot of hard work involved in this keep the book tech community on track. And there are, you know, a few warning signs here and there that maybe change is coming in some ways, and and the community will have to resist that. And the reason I think they will succeed is is found in in this passage from chapter three, which talks about the low dropout rates. I'll just read two paragraphs here. Unlike teachers at comprehensive high schools whose contact with students is limited to a class period and perhaps after school programs, Voctec students are with 10 to 15 students all day every other week. These adults develop mentoring roles and are alert to subtle changes that may signal the beginning of an issue that could cause a student to drop out of school. The instructors are our eyes and ears, said Sheila Harity, former principal of Worcester Technical High School and now superintendent at Massachusetts. When a student goes into crisis or has a problem, they are the ones who hear of it firsthand and are able to assist or to redirect the student. And I think that quote just goes to the heart of that vocational educational model, the caring and the hard work and the dedication that these communities exhibit every day. Well, Karen, I thank both of you for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the many hours of research that goes into an endeavor of this kind. I can say as someone who grew up in Los Angeles in the 1970s with two parents from the South, there was a time when the term Vogue Tech was cold for other people's children. It was often cold for the kids who weren't smart. It was cold for those kids who only can work with their hands, not with their brains. And what you're showing is that head, brain, heart, 
vision are all together. And you should provide some really wonderful statistics to back that up. And as someone who supports the idea that we need to give students a platform that could lead to a four-year college or two-year college, public or private or for-profit, or one that goes directly into the workforce or create entrepreneurship, I'm just for multiple paths. And I'm so glad that Massachusetts remains a let's just say a city on a hill, metaphorically speaking, as relates to Vogue Tech. And thank you so much again for what you do and look forward to talking to you in the future. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And listeners, As always, we leave you with a tweet of the week. This one from friend of the learning curve and former guest Ava Moskowitz. She says, charter schools educate 7% of all public school students, yet they receive less than 1% of total federal spending on K-12 education. As more parents opt out of traditional district schools, that imbalance should be corrected. I feel, Gerard, like we have to keep reminding our listeners of the fact that charter schools are doing good work and they're often doing it with less and they need more time after time. Gerard, next week we will be back together again and we'll be speaking with Dr. Margaret Mackey Raymond. She is the founder and director of the Center for Research on Education Outcomes, Credo, at Stanford University. Gerard Robinson, until then, please take good care of yourself. You too. All right, talk soon.